0: Pastor Gary was right. It is the choir of the saints. And it doesn't take much to make us sing, Lord. You just remind us of the great person of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, and we'll sing. And we're reminded of your faithfulness, and that makes us sing. And so, Lord, it motivates the believer to sing, Lord. And we sing intelligibly, where people can hear it and can see that there is a group of people here sold out for the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, and we know you use that testimony. So we thank you for the great display of our passage already by the church family here at Riverbend. Lord, we thank you for those who couldn't be here, Lord. There's dear, dear loved ones of Riverbend Church that can't be here. They are going through treatment. Uh, They have loss of loved ones. Uh, They're in the hospital. Lord, there's many reasons, and we miss them, and we long for them. I thank you for our pastors who so diligently call on them. I thank you for our membership that so Uh, often visits them and encourages them, Lord. And we pray that even as many listen now, that they would be encouraged from the message and the worship of their church, Lord. Thank you for this time. We do thank you for our missionaries. We are so excited to be a part of the spread of the gospel around the world, Lord, doing our part, holding that rope as others are lowered down into that well, Lord. And we pray that that well will be full of a living water, that people will thirst no more as, as men like Melvin and George and others Preach the gospel, Lord. Bring a great harvest. Lord, we thank you for letting us participate with what you're doing. Now, Lord, we turn to uh, a passage that the church has struggled for many years with, Lord. It was in the first century, and it's still here today, Lord. A misrepresentation of your truth, Lord. And so we pray for those that are here, for all of us, that we'd hear God's word, Lord. You'd minister even to people who don't know you that are here, Lord. I, I, I want them so dearly to know you, Lord. But Lord, I pray for those who do know you, that we would be able to uh, lovingly and rightly defend the faith in the word of God. So help us as we study this passage today. In Jesus' name, amen. We have been embarking in a great series in 1 Corinthians, and we have been working our way through this book, this letter. Um, and along the way, we have seen many perversions of the truth. <laughs> If you've been involved in the series, you've seen that. If not, I'd really encourage you to go back to the website and catch up on these sermons. Uh, uh, the, the, first, the church in Corinth had perverted so many truths. I just jotted down just off the top of my mind. Some that come to, to mind as we studied through this. Um, uh, and this is not all of them. But one, they, I think the biggest one it starts with is they weakened, at least on their part, they weakened the truth of the gospel. Uh, they fell in love with worldly knowledge they desired oratorical perfection and would compromise to get it they failed to build on the foundation of Christ-centeredness and they rejected the apostles' authority there was rampant immorality in their church that they wouldn't deal with and because of that there was a lack of discipline there was lawsuits against one another misuse of the temple of God, their own bodies there was a twisted view of singleness and marriage and divorce there was abuse of Christian liberty and there was a lack of concern for the poor and a lack of handling the Lord's table correctly. That wasn't all. There was a lack of true spirituality. They abused the gifts and it destroyed unity and caused factions, Lord, and, and with, the, with their Lord and with the church. They abused the gifts and, and wanted the superiority of spirituality. They focused on extreme things and missed the plane they went to the gifts that were fading away and they missed love that would last forever well that is what is all led up to chapter 14 and where again paul admonishes them and exhorts them to pursue spirituality with love as we saw last week That was the prominent theme. And when they would do that, they would find edification. They would find exhortation. And they would find consolation, comfort. These are the things they were failing in. We saw last week in the first 11 verses that Paul was teaching them that tongues is for self-edification. But prophecy, the proclamation of the promises of God, edifies the entire church. We worked hard to try to get our minds around that in the text. The form of tongues that were being practiced were were not known languages. They were not uh, a language that was known to men, but they were perverted, unintelligible worship that they deemed worship that was affected greatly from the pagan religions that were around them. These false religions had developed this ecstatic speech, and they would go into some kind of trance-like Meditation as they tried to speak with their gods. And somehow this perversion made its way into the church and became a practice of unintelligible prayer language. Paul's going to deal with that today. All in their pursuit of spiritual superiority. On the other hand, prophecy, Paul says, was a form of worship that drew people to the truth of God's promises. That's what they were to be focusing on. This was for their daily lives and to give them hope that God was going to fulfill all that he had promised. It was a hope for the future. This was what they were to spoke, uh, speak about and focus on. The gift of tongues was a language, think about this, unknown to the speaker, but known to the hearer. See, there was a true gift. And it was exercised and Peter spoke and everybody heard their own language. Though Peter did not know those language, he spoke in the language he knew. But false gift of tongues was unknown to the hearer and unknown to the speaker. And this, nobody was edified. So Paul here in this text, as we jump back into this, he's dispelling this false view of tongues. He's providing a correct view. And why God uses it in a miraculous way, If if they handled it right, they would be part of the missional effort of God. Because of that, they were not. So like the rest of the letter, this is a chapter of rebuke. It is not a chapter of how to set up a movement within your church. It is a rebuke chapter. So Paul does it out of love, though. He tells them, pursue love. He lovingly is correcting this false view of tongues and the perversion of worship that has happened. I watched a a short clip from a gal who had been caught up in some of the most extreme charismatic movement, and she started reading her Bible, and it changed her life. And she's come out and been really abused for this in a lot of ways, but she said, I had no idea what I was ever saying, but yet I was caught up in the emotionalism, and I know I did great damage, and she was there repenting of that. I think what Paul does here is he begins to now take on this prayer language. And I want to spend the first section of this, this first point, on verses 12 or 13 through 19 here and look at that. We turn in your Bibles to this point? Our, our first thought here is the unedifying and unintelligible pagan practice of prayer language. Now, that's a mouthful, but I think this is what is defined in here. There's an unedifying, unintelligible Pagan practice of prayer language. It was interesting. Somebody saw that title and those, these uh, titles of these points, and they said, I was in that. I, I knew what that is. And so this is something that we see within the Scriptures. Now, as we turn to this text, begin to, we begin to understand that Paul has been clear, right? He said there's a misuse of this true gift, and now they've uh, been brought to using a counterfeit gift. This is a counterfeit. It's not the real gift. It's a counterfeit gift. And that's why Paul has to deal with it, because it's created great chaos. There's no edification in happening here. And so this unintelligible, uh, ecstatic speech was now being deemed as some kind of prayer language, even though it was not understood by the one who prayed it or anyone else hearing it. And so this grieved Paul. He knew this was not the goal. And as noted last week, that the passage is absolutely clear, isn't it? When we read it, we go, well, that's pretty clear. In fact, because of that, many charismatic leaders have uh, now abandoned public uh, use of tongues. They they couldn't refute their own people. People go, well, uh, the Bible's pretty clear here. And so what they've moved this to is to a private prayer language And they use it, and as this is their instruction, is that this is purely devotional and only for yourself. Well, I want to refute that today. And I want to show that that's not what the Bible's teaching. But this is exactly what the pagan religions around the first century church believed. They believed it was a private way you spoke to your gods in some kind of a spiritual meditation to them today people believe that through this private prayer language they can experience god in some deeper way the word of faith movement has its roots in this see it just doesn't stay private even though they say it's private it doesn't stay and so the word of faith movement has risen out of this and pretty soon someone says i have a word from god from you And this has happened to Gina and I. It's happened in our ministry. They're dead wrong, as as wrong as you could ever be. Because they didn't use God's word. You come up and tell me that Jesus loves me, died for me, forgiven all my sins and has a place in heaven for me. I'd take that from God. (laughs) Because I got a bunch of verses that tell me that. And so this has been corrupted, and Paul knows it. He knows where it's going. One of the passages they love to defend this with is Romans 8.26, where the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Well, that's an abuse of that text. That text is qualifying the believer who has the Spirit of God, and and it is a simple text that brings great delight to a believer because there are times we suffer through such difficulties. We don't know how God is going to solve something that we sit there and just say, oh God, I don't even know what to say, but the Spirit is there for you. Communicating on your behalf and not in some Prayer language that you or nobody else would ever understand. It's just the blessing of being a saved person who now is the home of the Spirit of God. And yet that verse gets abused constantly in this subject. Well, throughout 14, and this is very important to understand, I I highlighted this a little bit last week, is that Paul uses the word tongues in plural anytime he talks about languages. So when you see in this text, and you can see like in, say, verse 5. Now, I wish that all spoke in tongues, plural. Galassa, plural. Languages, known languages. The, the person speaking it knows the language. Um, the person that hears it is in their language. That's the miraculous gift that we're talking about. But whenever the word tongue is used in the singular it's speaking to the reference of this pagan-influenced false form of worship. Verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue, singular, edifies himself. It's no good for anybody. It's no profitable. not profitable. Verse 13, we'll see this in a minute. Let every, therefore, let the one who speaks in a tongue... Uh, tongue pray that he may be interpreted there. Nobody understands it. It's something that is this um, uh, form of speech that the guy doing it and the person hearing it doesn't know. So as you go through that, keep that in mind. Now, I believe verses 12, 13 through 19 dispel all of this myth. In verse 12, notice you remember that he said, it's a barbarian to me. You sound like barbarians. I, I finished with this last week. Bar, 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 bar. It makes no sense. Not edifying, not exhorting me, and it's certainly not comforting me when you sound like that. And so Paul starts out this way in verse 12. So also you. So also you. This is the problem. But because Paul loves them, Paul loves this church. And I think what he's saying in verse 12, as we looked at it, so also you, since you are zealous for the spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church because he loves this church and he believes in them. And he believes they're zealous to be spiritual people. He says, stop seeking your own self-edification and seek to edify others. It's... It, He sees that it's destructive to this church. It's destructive to the lost. It's destructive in every manner. And so he graciously chides them. See, love has driven Paul to see the best in these people, even though he's rebuking them. But now Paul says, when you go to prayer, ask God to give you a gift, the gift that builds up and is fruitful and edifying for those around you. Look at verse 13. Therefore, let That one who speaks in a tongue, this is static speech, if if you're going to do this to show that there's a problem here, you've got to have an interpreter. Instead instead you are speaking in a tongue of some kind of prayer language, you're doing it without interpretation. It's unloving to the church. It's unloving to the lost. It's not edifying. It's not exhorting. And nobody's comforted. Stop doing it. (laughs) It's pretty clear, isn't it? And yet whole organizations and ministries have been built around this and yet the Bible says this is false well here's the reason why look at verse 14 for if I pray in a tongue my spirit prays my mind is unfruitful but my mind is unfruitful so if I pray in a tongue singular my spirit prays but my mind is unfruitful now notice that is a small s spirit that is not the spirit of God In other words, Paul is saying, I am not praying in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. I'm praying in conjunction with my own spirit, my fleshly spirit, which is not controlled by the spirit. It's controlled by my flesh and my mind, my fleshly mind, and I am not speaking in the mind of Christ. That's what he's saying here. And it's so important to go back to chapter 2, verse 16, as he uh, debates against another argument Uh, He says, but we have the mind of Christ. So he says, when you do these things, you're speaking in your fleshly mind. You're not speaking in the mind of Christ that we receive at salvation. And that comes in conjunction with the work of the Holy Spirit and His residing with us in the Scriptures. Now notice the results of this, verse 15 and 16. There's a result of this. This unfruitful labor, there's a result. What then is the outcome? I will pray with the, with the Spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place, uh, who fills the place of the ungifted say amen at the giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? Well, Paul's continuing to use the example of himself. First of all, you want, I want you to get this. He, this is the way he comes. He says... Look, if I do this, if I pray, if I pray in a tongue, he's, he's using a personal pronoun to bring it to himself. But here's what he's determined. He's determined never to allow, this is what this verses are teaching us, he's determined never to allow his tongue to pray or his mouth to sing um, uh, or, or for anybody's ears that will this truth, would, this, this ecstatic speech would fall upon it that can't appreciate it. Otherwise, it would be unfruitful. So he says, I will not pray, and I will not sing. If, if it is not intelligible and it is fruitful, I will not do it. He's just making a clear, flat-out statement here. Now, Paul says that he's made up his mind. I'll never give a message. I'll never pray. I'll never s- sing without the assurance that those who hear it understand. Now, when we were in Egypt here this last trip, um, what was really a blessing, and this happens everywhere we go, but this one, they actually gave us headphones that Gina and I put on, because everything's in Arabic, right, and I don't know very much. Um, we put on headphones, and then our translator was nearby with a microphone, and so whatever they were saying up front, read, whether reading scripture, singing songs, no matter what it was, they were telling us what it meant. That was really nice, Right? Okay, so you're sitting in a fully Arabic-speaking uh, little small community out in the middle of nowhere where I, the, the first time many of them ever heard the English spoke was me, and they laughed at me, right? Remember I told you that story. Um, uh, for me to hear what they were saying was so good, and it was so biblical. And I appreciate that. Many times I'll be down with Melvin or somewhere around the world, and they'll sit somebody next to me uh, in Gina, and they'll, they'll just tell me what's going on because they don't want me to not be profiting from what they're saying. You see how that? It's very plain, very very easy to understand that. That's good things. But also note the context of prayer and singing displayed, displays that Paul says, look, this is a public worship, right? You can't miss this in the text. They're praying, they're singing, they're speaking. The context here is public worship. And in that public worship service, they had greatly distorted it. And notice in verse 16 that Paul drops, look at this, he drops his, his personal pronoun, and what does he do? He picks up them. Otherwise, if you, if you do this, the ungifted person will not understand. Now let's handle that word ungifted here in verse 16. Uh, this word refers to the Christian, particularly in this passage here, who's in this public worship service, and he hears this unintelligible tongue from the speaker he is unable to understand it because he's ungifted to interpret it he doesn't know that language and so there there and there's no one there to explain it to him so he's he's there so his ungifted does not mean uh that he's that he's just you know doesn't have any gifts at all it means he's sitting there and he's now completely unaware of what's going on now the word ungifted now this is this is strong. Buckle up for this one. The word ungifted, we get our English word idiot from it. I know. It has the idea of unlearned, a person that's unlearned. So the listener now is at a complete loss. He can not affirm. Remember the word amen? When we amen in here, that means I agree. You are affirming what said. I wish there was a few more amens. Thank you. Um, it means I agree, right? We're in, we're in agreement with God's word here, all right? So he's, the, the, the Bible's teaching us that the listener here, he's at a complete loss. He can't amen. He can't affirm what the speaker's saying, particularly this prayer of thanksgiving. He can't enjoy the prayer of thanksgiving because he doesn't know what they're saying. So he sits there like an idiot, Have you ever been in these situations? If some of us in ministry have been, I've spoken some places that I go, oh, man, Lord, how did I get here? They're going to kill me. And I've been there. I've been in some of these, and I feel like an idiot. (laughs) What's that person? Well, we don't know. God knows. Well, what's that person? Well, I don't know. God knows. Well, I'm going to preach what everybody knows, the Bible. See, that that was the problem, right? And so now you're like an idiot. You're this unlearned person. You're not being edified. You're not being exhorted. You're not being comforted in any way. And there's some kind of prayer of thanksgiving going to God, and I'm not included. See, it seems fairly simple, doesn't it? And yet I believe Paul is saying that there's also those in the service. When you look at verse 17, you start saying, for you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. And so I think there's a vice versa here. So there's people sitting in the service and somebody's speaking in a way nobody can understand and they're still going, amen. What did you just amen to? The choice of the restaurant you're going to afterwards? I mean, you have no idea. And so Paul's saying, don't affirm something you don't understand, so let's not speak in a way that people don't understand. Let's be clear and intelligible and speak the truth in love. So Paul himself, and I think what he's doing here is he's promising. Paul's promising he would never be involved in this kind of situation. He would instruct this church to do the same. He said this is blind, emotional, fruitless worship is what he's pointing to. And it seemed very common in this church, and it's very common in hyper-charismatic churches today. And I want to say something here that you might, I hope you can understand it. I love reaching charismatics with the truth. And you say, well, why is that? Because a lot of times they are converted people. They believe that Jesus Christ died for their sins. And a lot of them come out of very difficult things. And, and they, they've been converted. And, and, they, and they believe Jesus died. But then their pastors, their leaders, their false shepherds, in a lot of ways, have led them away from the truth of the Scriptures. And they get lost in this. And then every once in a while, God brings them. They stumble into a church like ours. And I think there's many of our churches that hold to the Scriptures, sufficient Scriptures. And they start to hear this. And one of the things I love about them is they have a little bit of excitement to them. Right? You know, sometimes we're the frozen chosen. And we look like it. We should say hallelujah every once in a while, right? And, and, and there should be some joy. But that has to come from the text. It has to come from the gospel. It has to come from the truth that should rally you, that should lift your spirit when you're down. It, those truths should bring you back to the remembrance and the promises of God, and they bring great joy into you people often ask me, Scott, why are you so wound up? Because of this. (laughs) The more I study it, the more I can't control myself. I just want to tell you how great Jesus is. How great His Word is. And so I think Paul's instruction is so clear here. This has never been my goal. I do not want to participate in unintelligible speech that is contrary to the will of God. I don't want to be a part of it. He's warning them. Look at verse 18. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. Whoa. I mean, clearly, he's defending his apostolic strengths, right? His apostolic gifts. He's defending his his giftedness. Most likely, there's somebody there that's accusing him that he doesn't have it. Or they're jealous of his position. I don't know what it is, but he's he's clearly defending it. In fact, I, I think this tells us that Paul watched the true gift function. He doubtlessly heard what Peter did. God did through Peter in chapter 2. It seems like, he, I don't know how you take this. I speak in tongues, plural, languages more than all of you. Well, did he just know a lot of languages? Or was God demonstrating the gift pre-completion of the Scriptures that in him where he was able to go into certain places, just follow his missionary journey? Go, there's three of them. Look in the back of your Bible. He is going through language after language after language, culture after culture after culture, and he is saying, I speak in tongues more than all of you, languages. But notice what he does, and I think this is extremely important in verse 18, I thank God. So he reverses the praise that would come to him. Well, Paul spoke and we heard in our own language. He reverses that and puts it towards Christ, puts puts it towards God. I thank God. See, he's showing, you're over here drawing attention to your perceived superior, superiority and spirituality that you think you have. He says, I give credit to God. I give credit to God for this fading gift that I have. There's such humility in this. And this is what Paul does. I think this is what he's saying. I think he's saying, I give glory to God for doing something that I could never do. And I, I relinquish any credit for it. God is just doing this. I think this thing's going to fade away. He said these gifts will go away, but love will last. This is, a per- this is not a permanent thing. But God, let me do this for his glory, and I thank him. Isn't that a different way of coming at that? Now, I do believe these gifts have ceased. There's, there's not a need for it now. Um, but at this time, there was. Now, look at verse 19. I've got to keep moving. However, in the church, I desire to speak <laughs> whoo, five words with my mind, right, thinking, <laughs> correctly hearing correctly so that i might instruct others now here's here's the major tone here that changes rather than 10,000 words in a tongue so in other words paul sees that this extensive use of tongues foreign language in public gathering was not nearly as valuable as speaking with edifying encouraging Uh, uh, comforting words that were intelligible to the listener. He says, if it's something that everybody can hear, I would rather give five words than 10,000. Now, that is quite a statement, right? You know, preachers sometimes can exaggerate. (laughs) We get excited sometimes. But this is an amazing thing. The word for 10,000 is myrias. Now, myrias is is used of angels. Um, It's used of those that are in heaven. It is a word that, that the translators just picked 10,000. It's a a term that means a one with just a myriad of zeros behind it. Do you you understand that? This is the kind of effectual prayer that Paul thinks would be better. If I prayed just five words that my dear brothers and sisters could understand, it it would be better than speaking millions and millions of words that are unintelligible. So, the Corinthians may have felt they achieved some kind of superiority and spirituality of speaking in some uh, static speech. But the word of God's refuting them in this text. And they perverted this form of tongues. No one's edified, no one's profited. Verse 6, we saw that. But the proclaiming, and that's why I to get back. The proclaiming of the promises of God is profitable. It edifies, it exhorts, it comforts all those hear Him. This is His message. So we must, we, we must come to this conclusion. When you read this part of the text, as I'm going to shift into the next part, that this passage refutes some kind of private prayer language of unintelligible language that it is unfruitful, it has its roots in, in the pagan world, and it is only self-edifying, and it creates a self-deception. That's what Paul's saying here. Why? Speak so people will hear and understand. Just if you just study prayer in the Bible. Um, I've taught, I taught seminary classes on prayer. I've taught Lots of things on prayer. Not one prayer in the Bible would ever, ever lead you to that form of praying. Let me start with one you know. The Lord's Prayer. What did Jesus say? Pray in this way. Our Father, art in heaven. Pretty clear, right? Right? It's intelligible. It's understanding. You study the prayers of the psalmist. Read the prayers of the psalmist. If you have a broken heart, if you're going through something, spend time in the psalms. They're, they're a soothing balm to you when you read them. And many of them are prayers. And as you read them, you understand them. You go, ah, I don't know who this guy is, but he's hurting. And he's reaching out to God. I need to do that. See, it's edifying. It's comforting. It's encouraging. It walks you through it. Uh, probably some of the greatest prayers for me are the ones found in uh, Ephesians. It's, it's, a, it's a letter where Paul preaches and then he prays and, he prays. and He prays and he preaches and he preaches and he prays. and He keeps going back and forth. They are astounding, right? And in that, some of those prayers, he says, don't let us be like, a, like a, those tossed to and fro back and forth with the winds of doctrine. But let us be mature Christians, ever maturing Christians. In the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the way the Bible prays. They're highly understandable. They're greatly edifying. And and, and one last thought. This last Wednesday, I spoke about heaven in connection to the promised land in uh, Numbers chapter 13. And we took just a few moments to think about heaven. And it was very encouraging to those of us who were here, at least to me it was. And I thought about heaven after that, and I thought we'll experience the greatest and purest and the highest form of praise. And the Bible records this in the scriptures. Nowhere is there speech that's unintelligible in that. So why would you shoot for something down on this earth that has nothing to do with heaven? And yet that's what they were doing. We need to pursue what lasts. And that's driven by love. That brings us to worship God correctly. Second thought here. The sign of tongues exposes immaturity and coming judgment. The signs of tongues expose immaturity and coming judgment. Up to this point in chapter 14, Paul has been clear in his instruction. Do what's edifying. That's what God's telling you to do, but you're not doing it. So he he reminds them that prophecy, this truth-telling of God's promises... Uh, this, this is made up of intelligible speech. It's engaged with the mind and the heart. There's clear, understandable edification and exhortation and consultation. This is beneficial to the church that's been its stance. On the contrary, this ecstatic speech of tongues that is not uh, understandable has become this unintelligible, uh, some kind of language to the hear, and, and it appeals to the motion, and it brings the church no spiritual profit. But now, through the inspiration of the Spirit, he's going to lead us to the focus of the key point that he raised in verse 19. In the church. Notice that in verse 19. In the church. These are words that are very important. It helps us understand the the place where tongues and prophecy and these things have to do with God's people gathering. So this is a crucial, important understanding to where these things fit. Now, before we look at verse 20, Paul points out the underlying problem. This has made its way into the church. Now, he still loves the church, and he still sees them as believers, because we'll see that in verse 20, but he wants us to understand there's an underlying problem. It's shaking the foundation of this church, and it must be addressed, and he's going to say, here's the problem, look at verse 20. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. Now, brethren here tells us that Paul is showing kindness again, right? He's thinking the best of them. He's showing love to them. He, he calls them brethren. They may not be acting like it all the time, but he refers to them because clearly they have confessed that Jesus Christ died for them, that they are, they are children of God, and so he refers to them brethren. But Paul is also preparing them to hear truth that will push against this stubborn uh, arrogancy that they have. And this pride has been something he has been after uh, all the way through the book. He sees it in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1. He says, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech and wisdom. That's what you wanted. You were so caught up in that. I just came proclaiming clearly the testimony of God. So he's telling them they were children then they're, and infants. And doubtlessly, that's going to be hard for them to hear. Now, notice he says, do not be like children in your thinking. Uh, there's an imperative here uh, in this passage. So, we could easily translate it like this Stop being children in your thinking or your understanding or comprehension. Stop being children in that way. Uh, The word understanding or thinking, depending on what translation you have, is a word that's associated with the diaphragm, with the area around the heart. Um, it, it brings the idea of the seat of understanding. I a lot of things. at times I think we think it's here, but it's, it's really here in our hearts is what God is after. And so Paul is directly challenging their spiritual thought process. Are you thinking through these things? Are you, or are you thinking like infants? Now, now, because the Corinthians were guilty of childlike behavior, he goes after them in this area. And like a child, that is so easily distracted by a shiny something or a rattle. That's what these guys were. They were attracted to these immature things. And so Paul is now going to expose the the lack of depth in their mind and in their heart. And because they pursued this spiritual superiority through these, these false gifts, he is now going to show them you are thinking like a child. Now, I think the illustration there is easy to see. We had a, we had a poster um, in our house. It was actually Randy Johnson, uh, if you remember him. And he's like seven feet tall. And, and Gina, every you know, couple months, would mark the boys on that chart, right? We still have it. Did we, I think we have this. It'll be probably forever. Um, it's endearing to my wife. Um, but you can look at Colton, Connor, Caleb, and Cannon, and you can see all of them, and you can watch their growth. And that's good. That's healthy, Right? If you have a child that's not growing, you probably need to get to a doctor. That's a problem, right? And this is, in a sense, what he is saying. Another illustration I thought of the other day, Brantley came in the house, and and then this was a few months ago, he was rambling on about something. I turned to Becky, and I go, well, what's he saying? She goes, God only knows. (laughs) But now he comes in, and he says, Papa. He's working on Gigi. He said, Apple, the other day. Well, what's happening? See, the mind now is growing. The mind is strengthening, and the mind's connecting to uh, the nerves that go to the tongue. And and now he's formulating thoughts, and he's growing, right? And pretty soon, we won't be able to shut him up. Because that's what two-year-olds do. Why this? Why that? Why this? Why that? See, this is what they weren't doing. They weren't progressing in their spiritual growth, so Paul has to refer to them as children. Now, if that first phrase in verse 20 wasn't bad enough, the second one is tough. Yet in evil, be infants. Now, an infant, this term exposes even a younger age, right? He says, not only are you children, you're infants. And then he attaches the word evil here, which is a word for wickedness. It reflects depravity. And so he makes this comparison between children and infants. And it's Paul's way of saying that you're not maturing in the areas you should be. And so they become evil in the areas you should be maturing in. You're not. And your hearts and minds are not growing like the mind of Christ. You're staying where you should not be. They wanted to live in some infantile experiential emotionalism through mindless worship. And the result was evil. And you say, well, Scott, how evil was it? It was so evil that you withheld the only thing that could save a person, which was the gospel, the clear presentation of the gospel, and they couldn't hear it in their own language. That's pure evil. You withhold the truth of eternal life from somebody, there's no more evil than that, and that's what Paul's getting at. You spoke in a tongue, and nobody understood it. And that person needed it. God sent that person there, and they didn't understand it. Ooh. Ooh. I think this. I think what Paul's getting at, I think he took this from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 4, verse 22. For my people are foolish. This gets rough. They know me not. They are stupid children and have no understanding. They are shrewd to do evil, but to do good they do not know. I think that's where he got it from. And I'm not alone. He, see, he saw that they had become these infantile children and they were hurting the flock... So he's exposing this Corinthian spiritual immaturity. And that's been the theme of his letters all the way through. Now, the Corinthians had failed to mature um, because of that pride, right? And so he's starting to expose this. So he uses a really unique way. Look at verse 21. In the law it's written, By men of strange tongues, by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people. And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So when he says here, he says in the first phrase, in the law, he, in a sense, is summing up all of the Old Testament that he quotes many times. He quotes Isaiah six times in the book of 1 Corinthians, and this is one of them. So he turns to the book of Isaiah, and and for sake of time, is that clock's battling me again? Um, I just want to tell you what Isaiah 28 is about. Uh, he, He brings this passage to describe the rebellion of the nation of Israel. And he wants them to see how God, what ways God brought judgment upon them. And so when you go to Isaiah chapter 28, King Hezekiah is ruling at this time. Judgment is still quite a ways off. It's probably a hundred years off. It's, it's, it's the, southern, this is the southern kingdom because the northern kingdom has already gone away. They're fat and happy. They're, the nation is prospering. But he's warning them that the exact same thing is going to happen To to them, that happened to their northern tribes, their northern brothers. Because just some 25 years earlier, the northern tribes were hauled away into captivity by a strange tongue, the Assyrians. And so this phrase, strange tongues, plural, and by lips of strangers, this this is referring to the foreign uh, language of the Assyrian tongue. And so God used this in 722. He brought them, they crushed the northern tribes, hauled them off into slavery, and now they were captive and they had to take instruction and their masters spoke in a language that was not theirs. See, he's getting serious here. And now the prophet was warning them, the the southern tribes, he's warning the tribes going, what happened to them is going to happen to you. Judgment will fall upon you. And if you don't obey God, you are going to feel his punishment through foreign language. So what is he doing here? He's helping them understand that tongues was a form of punishment that God had used. If you look at that passage, those who are flipping over there, verse 9, they just mock him. They mock Isaiah. Oh, man, things are great. The economy's great. We're doing great. Northern Kingdom's gone. We've got more room. They don't want to listen to him. But this wasn't the first time this happened. Some 800 to 850 years before that, Moses, right before they go in the Promised Land, tells the nation of Israel, if you rebel against God, the same thing's going to happen to you. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 49. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar. That tells you it's not a neighbor. From the end of the earth, as eagles swoop down, a nation whose language you shall not understand. So you have to deal with this text in verse 21. You can't just say, why does he drop this text into the middle of this argument? You, you, you have to deal with this. And so why is he doing it? Because he's showing, this is why I brought tongues. One of the reasons that I use tongues is for judgment. And that's not all. A hundred years after Isaiah prophesied, Jeremiah has now come because the judgment that God promised would come to, the nor- come to the southern tribes like it did to the northern tribes is now there. And it's in the form of Nebuchadnezzar, a Babylonian babble, babble, babble. Do you get what he's doing here? Jeremiah, God speaking through Jeremiah 5.15 says this, behold, I am bringing a nation against you from afar, a house of Israel, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation. It is a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Wow. See, Paul is saying, you want to get caught up in some languages that nobody knows what it is? Let me tell you what God does with that. He uses it for judgment. And you're trying to use it in a public worship place? Or some kind of private prayer? This is what God does. Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching. He preaches and everybody hears it in their own language. You get all the way down to verse 13, and they mocked him, those who didn't believe. 3,000 people came to faith that day. They heard the gospel and their language, and they came to faith. But there were those who mocked him, and God brought judgment on them. A.D. 70, right? 70 A.D. Here comes the Romans, not their language of the Jews, and they crush the Jews. Uh, Uncountable numbers of Jews died in A.D. 70. The temple was completely wiped out. Paul's saying, look you want to get involved in these tongues, it's a sign. It's a sign of God's judgment, and you're trying to use it in some perverted worship service. See, Paul's using the history of Israel to drive home his point, and and we need to be careful how we deal with things that God uses a different way. Now, listen, brothers, I understand. It's clear that God used tongue in a missional way. Our God is missional, right? But but this is not how he was using it. He used clear, intelligible, understandable tongues, languages for people to hear. And so Paul is like, says, you're going down the wrong road with us. Look at verse 22 with me. So then, tongues, plural, are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. So then, just points to the conclusion of this Old Testament argument tongues are a sign. The word, the word sign there is the Greek word ace, it, is, it means there's a purpose. So, tongues had a purpose, and that purpose was judgment. It came in the form of Assyrians and Babylonians and the Mede Persians and the Greeks and the Romans, and it just keeps going, right? Even to this day, it is only since, uh, you know, less than, a dec- less than a century have they been back in the nation. And they still have people of an unknown tongue that hate them. This is a rebellious, this is because of their rebellion. And so the Bible says tongues were used for a sign. But, but tongues show that God's in this, right? I'm in this. I, I'm going to bring them under this, uh, this alien language so that they know they rebelled against me. When you study biblical history, God uses tongues, languages, and lots of different situations. and it, I mean, it ranges from Balaam's donkey to the apostles, right? To bring about his truth. So when you, every text, when you examine these texts in almost every case, we find the clear need for the unredeemed to hear the gospel. And yet they were using this in the church. And God is rebuking them. So this is what Paul is doing here in verse 22. He's explaining the particular reason for the sign. Now, tongues were not used, uh, were not to be uh, used for edification for the believer because they are already convinced of the finished work of Christ. Right. So don't use it with a believer. They already know. So the Corinthians had made this a strong central part of their worship service, and Paul says this is not what it's for. We are to speak to the heart and to the mind in order to mature believers. That's why we teach the way we do. This is why we teach verse by verse. We call it expositional preaching. We hold to the authority of God's word because that's what believers need. And by the way, unbelievers come and they hear the glorious gospel that Jesus died for them sins and God saves them in these services even though we preach to the mature at times. And believe me, I I, I pray over these messages because I go, Lord, there's doubtless going to be people who are unsaved in the building and I'm preaching on tongues of prophecy. But God has a way of reaching your heart if you're unsaved. I pray he's reaching your heart this morning that you're a sinner and your sins are going to cause you to be condemned forever unless you place your faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so I hope you hear that. And and the church sometimes gets, gets off in these wrong thinking. And because of that, they often lead people astray. Now, notice at the end of verse 22, this is important. He makes a great contrast between the gift of prophecy. And immediately, notice in verse 22, the end of verse 22, but prophecy is a sign for, not to the unbelievers, but to the believers. And so, immediately, you see that prophecy is for the believers, and Paul is, is repeating this theme throughout the chapter. Uh, prophecy is, a, is a, 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 excuse me, the word I'm looking for, um, a proclamation of the promises of God. That's what it is. It's not some word from God I pulled out of the air or, or whatever I think is going. It's saying this is true of God. And they could prophesy, even though they didn't have the New Testament, they had the Old Testament that was all pointing forward to Christ. They could take those truths and encourage one another. And Paul says, I'd rather do five words of that than any of the other stuff. So the goal of prophecy was instruction, Right? The very thing new believers need, old believers need. An, un, an unbeliever needed salvation. And that we know that's miraculous. And God used tongues to bring a lot of people to the Lord. 3,000 in chapter 2 of Acts, another 4,000, 5,000, and so forth. But he knew what the church needed. And so the result was, in this church, in this setting, here is the result, and this is disturbing. The unconverted were not hearing the gospel, and the converted were growing in pride and immaturity. And that's the result of this church. Last thought here, and we've got to really go. Um, this is, this, these last few verses are beautiful. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men and unbelievers enter, they will, not, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever and, uh, or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all and he is called into account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed so that he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Well, here we come to this last thought, chaos versus conviction and conversion. Notice the phrase, whole church. Well, who's the church? Is the church just anybody? We get the word ecclesia, for the church, right? The assembly of the elect, those who God has saved. It is it is not for the whole world. So here he reminds that the whole church, when it is gathered together, the believers, you are to, you are to use these gifts properly. There is a place for evangelism that tongues had in its time. But there's also a sign of judgment, so be careful with this. Everything should be done for edification, exhortation, and comfort. This is what Paul's saying. And so Paul. Notice that Paul says that when an unbeliever enters into the church and he sees this chaos in this uninterpreted tongues, he says, you people are crazy. Isn't that right? Look at the end of verse 23. Will he not say you're mad? You've lost your mind. Now, the word ungifted here refers to the believer that doesn't understand. That's that's the idea that was in verse 16. But here, the the unbeliever doesn't understand, right? So in verse 16, the unbeliever goes, I don't know what they prayed some prayer Thanksgiving, the, the believer But here the unbeliever goes, I have no idea what these people are doing. They're just crazy. And so this was a common problem, and Paul wants it addressed. And and don't miss that this unbeliever that's coming in from the outside, he, he, he doesn't understand at all what's going on here. He's in a state of confusion. And so the Corinth church was doing a great injustice, I think, to the believer and to the unbeliever. Now let me just sum up verse 23, and then I'll close with 24 and 5 real quick. Tongues were not being used for God's intended purpose to reach the loss with the gospel in their own language. But they were brought into this worship service. It was emotionally charged. It had taken over, and they had puffed themselves up with it. And this was a place that some unbeliever might walk in. And I'm taking this from verse 23 and, and put it in my words, that they may say this. What kind of place is this where you, where you call your religion worship, but nobody can understand what you're saying? I think that's what he's saying, what the unbeliever would come away. And yet the mission-minded apostle Paul, right? The early church believers, they saw God do amazing things and the gospel spread and they were to come back to that good news. Now look at verses 24 and 25. These are great here. What a contrast. When this unbeliever comes in, in verse 24, right? He's an unbeliever. He's an ungifted man. He doesn't doesn't know these. He doesn't have a discerning spirit. Um, yet, because he doesn't have the Spirit of God with him, and the Gospels preach, look what happens. He hears this this great promises, this great prophecy of who God is and what he's done and what he's going to do. He hears this, and notice in verse 24, he falls under conviction. And it's done by all. I, I like that. That means it's just not the pulpit. It's everyone. They come into a church like ours and people are gracious and kind to one another and they're talking about the greatness of God and they're they're praying with each other and people are hurting and people are caring for them and they're speaking of a God who can deal with sin and can deal with our hurts and and can help us. And the the unconverted person says, I don't know what's going on here, but I want this. (laughs) I want this. And that's the idea here. And notice what happens. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. See, I think this is exactly what happened in chapter 2 of Acts when they preached the gospel. The people said, cried out to Peter and the apostles and said, What must we do to be saved? See, when we stay preaching the gospel in intelligible truth from the Word of God, God uses that to reveal the secrets of the heart, and people confess, repent, and get saved. And notice it says he will fall on his face and worship God. Isn't that what we're after? Isn't isn't that what we're part of? Gathering more worshipers. God is doing that. Gathering more worshipers who fall on their face and say, God, you are the only way. You you sent your son. He did what I could not do. Thank you for giving me saving faith. See, that's what he's after here. That's the goal. And so as I close, let me ask you just a couple of questions, and then we're going to sing a song this morning. Can we say of ourselves, and I want you to really work through this, has my presence at today's worship service, been edifying to those around me? It's a good question, isn't it? Am I edifying those around me? Have the words that have come out of my mouth, the way I greeted somebody around me, the willingness to give up my seat and slide to the middle? I threw that one in. <laughs> the joy in my singing, the attentiveness of my listening. The prayers that I have given, the pursuit of love of others, was it profitable and was it edifying and comforting to those around you? What are you going to say when we're done here, when we sing that last song and we close in a benediction? What's going to come out of your mouth to the person next to you? What's going to be your speech at lunch and so forth? Is there edifying? That's the goal of public worship and we edify one another, we build one another up in the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, I believe that many of you by the grace of God can say, yes, this is why I came, this is what I'm doing. I want to dogmatically pursue love and love those around me. Amen? Father, thank you for the grace and mercy you give us to work through difficult texts, Lord. Thank you for the authority of God's word and kindness that you show to us through your spirit to help us look at the word of God and understand it in an intelligible way. I thank you that it leads us to worship. We, we come away from this text and we're so grateful for what you have done. I pray, Lord, that each and every one of us will speak, respond, think and love in ways that are edifying, ways that that bring comfort to those around us, Lord. Now, comfort may be, Lord, we may have to say, oh, friend, uh, can I help you with that sin struggle? But everything we do, the way we listen, the way we speak, the way we minister to people around us, may it be edifying for your glory and for the good of those who hear it. In Jesus' name, amen.